This is the Memoir 44 podcast. It's for fans of the Days of Wonder game called Memoir 44. This podcast home on the web is at memoir44podcast.blogspot.com. Get in touch by sending an email to memoir44podcast at gmail.com. Hello, and welcome to the second of the Memoir 44 podcasts. I'm FNH, also known as FNH1 at BoardGameGeek. For the first time, none of us spoke, but each looked at the other. Momentarily, we interrupt this description of Wright Bryant being broadcast from the British Isles to give you this bulletin that's come in on the International News Service here in New York. It says, at 4.10 a.m. Eastern Wartime today, German broadcasts reported fighting between German and Allied troops 10 miles inland from the coast of Normandy. DNB said that Allied troops had been reinforced at the mouth of the Seine at dawn. You must remember that this is a German broadcast which is reported by INS, but it is the first word of any fighting inland at all, and the German, this German broadcast says 10 miles inland. And now we return to the description of Wright Bryant speaking from Supreme Headquarters in England. The small fields look peaceful with their orderly hedgerows. It almost seems you could see the furrows. Now the paratroopers were on their feet, each adjusting his packs and snapping his ripcord over the static line, a cable which ran along the center of the cabin ceiling so that each chute would open automatically as its wire jumped through the door. You all set, asked the colonel. Get this thing hooked for me, he said, as he took his own place closest to the door. The jump lights, a small bank of signal lamps, were gleaming beside the door. They blinked as the pilot threw his switch, and before I could look up, they began jumping. I wanted to know how long it would take the 18 men to jump. I tried to count 101, 102, 103 to estimate the number of seconds. Before I had counted to 10 seconds, it may have been 11 or 12, but no more, our passengers had left us, all but one of them. The paratroopers shoved each other so swiftly and heavily towards the open door that they jolted against the door frame. One man among the last half dozen hit the rear of the door so heavily that he was thrown into the back of the cabin and dazed. The men behind shoved him aside and went on jumping. Before the unhappy soldier could get to his feet, our plane was well past the drop zone, and in a matter of minutes it was back over the water and setting a course for home. It was too late. And that soldier had to return with us. He was unconsolable. He thought his comrades might think him yellow. The plane crew assured him that they would think no such thing. But he sat moody and glum all the way back and appealed for lonely instructions when he returned. As soon as I had watched the jumps from the rear door, I ran back to the front of the ship and looked straight back from the glass dome. Tiny streams of tracer bullets were curving upward from the ground, but they were well behind us. One of the pilots in our squadron had unwittingly left on his formation lights, and the tracers came closest to his wingtips. But we saw Today, I'm going to focus on the second scenario that comes in the box when you buy your copy of Memoir 44. This scenario is called St. Mare Eglise. I started researching the history of this battle on the web, but was sadly disappointed. Really, all I could find was the same three or four paragraphs repeated on site after site. In the end, I had to resort to rereading a book by Cornelius Ryan called The Longest Day, and noting all of the pertinent facts that I could find in there. Here's what I found out. 
The mayor of St. Mayor Eglise, Alexandre Renaud, was woken by a fireman. And he felt the ground shaking beneath him as a mass of bombers flew over the town, and they were attacking something nearby. The fireman needed the mayor so that he could go and see the German occupiers and get the curfew lifted, in order for the firemen and the people of the town to help fight this fire that was taking hold of Heron's villa. The mayor rushed over to the German's office and got that permission. Meanwhile, the men of the 505th leaped out at about 400 feet. Private John Steele saw as he was floating down that he wasn't going to drop into the drop zone marked by the pathfinders, but was actually dropping into the centre of a town, towards a square where a house was ablaze. A bullet hit his foot, smashing it, and a gust blew him towards the church steeple. Another private, Ernest Blanchard, was dropping through the darkness towards the same square. He spotted another man floating beside him suddenly explode as the explosives he carried were hit by a bullet. With horror, he found himself caught up in a tree, and given a viewpoint that allowed him to see and to hear his brothers-in-arms being slaughtered as they landed. Desperately, he saw through his parachute straps and made his escape. Only later did he realize that he had also sawed through his thumb. Only about thirty troops actually landed in the town, but it seems that the German garrison thought the paratroopers, combined with the unprecedented aircraft overhead, meant they were in the middle of a major assault, and they panicked. The mayor was thinking that the Germans were scared. As he watched from the fire-lit square, a paratrooper dropped into a tree, and as he watched, all of the Germans opened fire on him and left him hanging lifeless. Private Steele, the chap I mentioned earlier, found himself hung up on the church roof. Seeing the Germans blasting away at anything, he decided to play dead. While he hung there, he was aboard to see two of his comrades come floating down out of the air and straight into the burning house on the square, where their screams were heard by everybody on that square, and this was followed by the ammunition they carried being cooked off. Meanwhile, many gliders were coming in from the coast. The exploding flak pushed the gliders around as they struggled towards the landing zones a couple of miles from St. Mary's. The majority of the gliders made it down safely, an amazing fact considering that most of the pilots had been lucky to have made even two previous landings. The fields around were dotted with stout poles designed to prevent glider landings, and some gliders found that they worked. One lucky fellow, sitting inside a jeep inside a glider, stared eyes agape as the poles ripped the wings off his glider, which then slewed around and snapped in half. Other gliders weren't so lucky. They hit houses, walls, hedgerows, and marshes, but most of the people made it. The soldiers landing around the town were dispersed and disorganized, but started to make their way into the town. Lieutenant Colonel Edward Krauss had expected a lot of fight from the garrison, but other than a few snipers, he found the town pretty much empty of Germans. It seems their panic had made them withdraw. The colonel stared around as they reached the square at the dead paratroopers hanging from trees and buildings and those lying on the ground. At the town hall, he found the flagpole, and quietly, without any kind of fanfare, raised the stars and stripes. Now, before I go in to look at the scenario itself, take a listen to this. Hello, my name is Jack Juritza. What you're about to hear is not a historical recreation of a battle, 
but a dramatic reenactment of a scenario appearing in the Memoir 44 board game. A unit from the scenario is randomly selected, and a story is tailored around the unit's experience as the scenario is played. For this episode, we played scenario number two of the base box set. The directions in the scenario call for four infantry figures to be held 12 inches above the board and dropped to simulate a parachute drop. I randomly selected one of these infantry to represent the unit that this story is tailored around. Now here is that unit's story. I was on edge. There was no other way around it. It was hurry up and wait. The plane ride seemed to take forever. And from the reactions from the guys by the door, it wouldn't be long now. We were over land. We had a jumpsuit, right? I was amazed how some of the guys could sleep during the flight of the ocean. I know it was the middle of the night, but come on guys, we're about to go into battle. I was so wound up tight. I was just ready to explode. Then it all happened so fast, I didn't have time to think, but react and perform what I'd been drilled in my head so many times over and over again. Stand up, hook up, move towards the door. I was out of the plane, floating towards the ground before I realized this was it. I looked below and saw a hill. I was drifting to the right of the hill. My land area looked like an open field, so I wouldn't have to worry about trees. This felt like so many training jumps, but in the back of my head, I was still waiting for someone to start shooting at me. As the ground got closer and closer, I realized that there was someone on the hill. I was so close now, I was afraid to move. I held my breath because in my head, I rationalized. If they couldn't hear me breathe, then they couldn't see a large man floating in a parachute to a soft landing beside them. Several shoots touched down before I did, and quickly I heard the call and response that let me know that they were on our side. Thunder. I had survived the first real scare of the night. The ground came rushing up to greet me, and I landed with a thud. I was in an open field, and I knew that I had friends on the hill. As I raced to free myself from my chute, I felt naked standing in the field. The darkness hid me, but also fueled my thoughts of someone somewhere scanning the darkness with their gun sights ready to fire upon me. Without words, my squad formed up and instinctively moved towards the town right in front of us. As we got closer and closer, I readied myself in case someone was right around the corner. We entered the city, and to my surprise, there was no one there. It was empty, and now it was ours. I didn't know if we were in the right city. Could this have been our objective, if no one was here to defend it? My squad scrambled to find cover into Defender Secure near the, the captured yes, city. Sir. I was starting to feel safe when I started to hear the sounds of battle in the distance. It was real now. I was not in the actual battle, but it was coming. Scanning the field next to the town, I started to see movement and then heard voices. It was not English. My heart sank, but this is what I was sent here to do. A few shots were fired at us, so they knew that we were here, but none found their mark. All of a sudden, I heard a fighter plane overhead. It moved towards the city to our east. I heard the explosion and saw a distant orange glow. I guess the Germans knew we were in that city too. 
I turned my attention back to the field. It came alive. My eyes widened as the whole field seemed to writhe and move, and then I saw muzzle flash after muzzle flash. I put my head down. I was one of the lucky ones. We were now taking hits. My training kicked in. I sighted the movement in the field and fired. I sighted again and fired. This town was ours, and we weren't going away easily. All of a sudden, grenades exploded all around us. I realized we took the city too easily. The sarge was yelling at us to fall back. I didn't have to be told twice. As quickly as we had entered the city, we left the city. As we broke back into the field, I noticed that there were only a few of us left. The field was now erupting with Germans. We were outnumbered by at least ten to one, I thought, running in terror. We all saw Germans pressing towards our friends on the hill. They turned towards us and opened fire. I thought I was running as fast as I could until the Germans opened up on us. I then realized I could run even faster. It wasn't long before a shot found its mark. I spun in the air. My leg was on fire. A bullet had found its mark. I tumbled to the grass and readied my weapon to make my last stand against the people who just shot me. To my surprise, my friends on the hill cut them all down. Thanks, guys. A little too late, but thanks, guys. I spent what felt like an eternity nursing my wound and trying to find a defendable position. I heard mortar fire from behind me and watched as orange and yellow flames exploded from the city in front of me. Not long afterwards, another infantryman found me making my last stand, only to let me know we had won. The Germans were retreating, but we took some heavy losses. I was just glad to be alive and that the dawn was coming soon. Thanks, Jack. That was inspired. I'm looking forward to your next submission. Okay, now I'm going to take a look at the scenario itself. Let's start by checking over the board. The town of St. Mary Glees is the centerpiece on this map. The town itself is three town hexes in the center of the board. One Axis infantry unit occupies that three-hex town. On the left of the board, we have another fairly large town, Nouvelle-Uplaine. This is made up of two town hexes and has a large woods to the north of it. There are two important features on this side of the board. The first one, towards the bottom, there is a hill that starts with an allied unit on top of it, and it has sandbags, making it a very strong position. There are also four Axis infantry units that start in the top left. They are next to that woods and behind the town. Over on the right, it gets a bit more interesting. Over here we have a small one-hex town of Fouville, but there's also a very large wood, and between these two features are cramped in, in an almost stuck position, four Axis infantry units and one lone tank unit. The tank unit is stuck behind the infantry, and the only way it's going to get out is to move the infantry first. The rest of the board has very scattered woods and hedgerows hexes, and other than that, it's completely plain. The Allies start with a number of troops on the board. There's one on that hill with the sandbags I mentioned earlier, and there are also four other infantry units, which are scattered across the bottom of the board, and I'm guessing that these represent the various glider-based landings. As well as these starting forces, the Allies also have an opportunity for an airdrop. Now this is done by taking four figures into your hand, holding them a foot over the board, and then basically just letting them go, and wherever they land on the board, it's where you're going to place a unit. So you end up 
with quite a favourable number of troops around the centre of the board, generally speaking, for the Allies, because those airdrops will generally land in or around St. Mary Glee. Although that said, being plastic, the units can in fact bounce anywhere. Based on the history that I've read about this battle, I think they've done a very good representation of it in the game here. There's only a very small garrison in the town of St. Mary Glee itself, but there are two fairly strong sets of reinforcements out to either wing. Now that can represent the counterattacks that came into the town later in the day, a couple of hours after the initial drop. I've played this battle a number of times, and I have yet to come up with a single strategy, hint or plan for the Allied player. Your troops start out so dispersed, plus you have this uncontrollable airdrop, so it's very hard to put together any set plan. You basically need to take advantage of what happens when those troops hit the board. Really, the first thing you need to do is try and distribute your troops. Now, the troops that start set up on the board are basically all in the centre. You have one troop on the left, you have one on the right, and you start with four in the middle, plus wherever your airdrop goes. So the best advice is really to distribute your troops across the three zones or take best advantage of what cards you start the game with. Now you have to remember that this is only a four medal battle, so it's going to be opportune for you to try and take cover as soon as possible. Every time you lose a unit, you're well on the way to losing the battle. So you want to take advantage of the hedgerows and the woods that are out there. Of course, the Axis player has a similar situation. He also has a disadvantage in that his units start together in groups. So if the Allied player gets hold of the air power card, then he's going to be able to inflict some serious damage. And in fact, that's what I did once. For the Axis player, you need to get your troops spread out and possibly try and take advantage of the terrain. You might even want to withdraw the single unit that starts in St. Mary's itself, because the Allied player starts with three plus the airdrop figures all around that town. And if he stays there on his own, he's going to be outnumbered three or four to one, and he doesn't stand a chance at that, and that's an easily lost medal. Again, for the Axis player, you need to get your tanks out. That does mean that you've got to move the infantry out of the way, because they literally box it into the corner. So you're going to have to spend a turn or two moving the infantry out into the woods and into the town of Fouville, and then that'll allow your tanks to move through the opening. But of course, because the tank has such reduced battle dice when attacking woods or hedgerows, you really only want to use it, if you can, at maximum range against infantry in the open. Now, if you're lucky, you'll manage to catch some. If the Allied player is taken to the woods, then keep your tank well back. Keep it at maximum range, so then you can get at least one die from three hexes away. Another general suggestion, especially for the Allied player because you don't have any tanks, is that you want to try and outnumber your opponent in any one location. So if you can manage to isolate one infantry unit or even a tank unit, you want to bring two or three of your units within attack range so that you can basically bring overwhelming firepower to that fight. I'm afraid that's all of the advice I can give you for this scenario, but I can give you my opinion of it. I think it's very good. I think it's a lot of fun. I especially like the fact that you're dropping figures onto the board and you don't know where they're going to come out. That actually gives this scenario a lot of replayability. It can also be very hard for both sides to get a win if your opponent is playing defensively. There are gaps between the woods and between the buildings, and so you're always at a serious disadvantage trying to shoot across those gaps, and it encourages you to try and make a forced march across that gap and make a close assault. Of course, as soon as you do that, you're at a serious disadvantage. 
and that makes it a lot of fun. You never quite know when you're going to try that and when you're not going to do it. The single tank unit also makes it interesting for the Allied player. It's the second scenario in the game, and it's the first time they bring tanks into it. That makes it a second learning scenario, much like the first one. But, because there's only one tank unit, it's not overpowering, and you'll soon learn to keep your tanks at maximum range and fire with as many dice as you can possibly configure. In summary, this is a replayable scenario. I think it's a lot of fun, and it seems to represent the history very well. That's it for the scenario. So let's turn to my big book of wartime events for on and around the 13th of December, 1944. Back on the 12th, on the Western Front, the U.S. First Army battles its way through the Hutgun Forest to within two kilometers of Duran. Lancasters and Mustangs bomb Witten, which is apparently the only town in the Ruhr that hasn't been bombed yet. On the actual 13th itself, on the Western Front, the Allies managed to capture the last German stronghold on the Metz. In the air war over in the Pacific, B-29s are attacking Japan and destroy the Mitsubishi works at Nagoya. Now on to the 14th. It's not over on the Western Front yet. The Germans counterattack at Colmar. And finally, back in the Pacific, TF-38, I presume that's Task Force 38, raids airfields on Luzon, destroying 170 Japanese aircraft, but at the cost of 65 US aircraft. Time to close the book. Now for something a little different. Due to a recent birthday, I have a spare copy of a DVD of The Longest Day. If you haven't seen it, then I suggest you check out its page at the IMDB. I'm giving this away as a competition prize. This is a two-disc collector's edition, and it's a Region 2 disc, so unless you can play that on your DVD player or in your computer, I guess this competition's not worth entering. To enter this, send me an email to the show's email address. Make sure you put the word competition in the subject line, and tell me which of the scenarios from the base game is your favourite and why, and I'll probably read out the winners. Everyone who enters this will be in with an equal chance, as I'll be using dice to determine the winner. The competition has a solid end date of the 5th of January, so you need to get your competition entries in before then. We're over the enemy coast now, and the run-in has started. One minute, 30 seconds, red light, green light, and out, out, get on, get out, get out. Out fast into the cool night. Out, out into the air over France. And we know that the dropping zone is obstructed. We're jumping, in fact, into fields covered with poles. But I hit my chute and lower my kit bag, which suspends on the end of a 40-foot rope from my harness. And then the ground comes up to hit me, and I find myself in the middle of a cornfield. Now we're into the end show roundup. Firstly, if you have any comments about the show, please get in touch and let me know what you think. Any suggestions are welcome. If you think you'd like to contribute to the show, then please get in touch. I'd love to have more voices on the podcast. Next time I plan to do a special on the third scenario in the base game, so if you have any opinions or perhaps strategy guides, perhaps record them, send them to me, and I'll play them on the show. You can email me about anything, and specifically about that competition, at memoir44podcast at gmail.com. I've also set up that guild at Board Game Geek that I mentioned last time. There are forums in that guild, so feel free to drop by and leave any comments there. 
It's guild number 597. So that's all for today. F&H, signing off. The paratroops are landing. They're landing all around me as I speak. They've come in from the sea, and they're fluttering down, red, white, and blue parachutes fluttering down, and they're just about the best thing that we've seen for a good many hours. They're showering in. There's no other word for it. <laughs>